I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. The effort that we make in Sashin and in life occurs little by little, day by day, hour by hour, interaction by interaction, meditation period by meditation period, step by step and breath by breath. And all of it matters. At the beginning of a session, or really anything that we do that has significance to us, we likely set an intention, have an understanding for why we are going forward into the thing that we're moving into, a reason, a vow, an intention, something that's calling us. But then as we continue forward, we have to do the work. I promise this is a Harada Roshi quote and not a Soten quote. If a runner makes a vow to run a marathon, it is not the vow that accomplishes the goal. It is the running. And by running step by step, the goal is accomplished. And of course, a runner can never run a marathon because a runner can never do more than one step at a time. Yet, after enough steps, a marathon is accomplished. And so too, we can never do a session in a moment. It's breath by breath that we practice, and eventually a session has happened. We only become clearer by each and every individual moment of practiced clarity. Taking care of the mind through meditation, moment by moment, or while working, taking care of the mind by taking care of the objects around us, taking care of each thing one at a time. And significant events happen from time to time in life, in session, but from our perspective from the inside, all we can ever do is practice, is do our best moment to moment. I remember an ancestor's session years ago in which Hogan was talking about Shoto Harada Roshi, then his teacher of a couple decades, whom he had great respect for. And Hogan said something like, one of the problems that one can have in working with a teacher like that 
meeting a teacher that was so highly esteemed. One of the problems one can have working with a teacher like that is seeing that the teacher is so high above you, so far away, that, that you give up hope, that you stop trying. The bar is just unreachable, so you stop reaching for it. Uh, an, Episcopal, an Episcopal minister and Sangha member of ours shared with me once that one of her concerns about her congregation was that they viewed Jesus Christ as divine. And the problem she was explaining was she was concerned that people had the mentality because Christ was the Son of God and I am not, I'm off the hook. So I wanted to talk about somebody very accessible and close to home, just like we did yesterday. And this person's Zen life, so to speak, so to speak, begins with a story that some of you have heard before. In her words, during the Vietnam War, I was a political activist. I fought for peace. There was some contradiction. There wasn't any peace in me. I hated the people who disagreed with me. That was a kind of war within me. This is her writing years later, reflecting upon the experience. In 1968, I was just beginning to look at the way in which I was vigorously clinging to my opinions about things and denigrating others who had different opinions. When there was a strike at San Francisco State University, the police came with their masks and clubs. They started poking people. And without thinking, I ducked under the hands of people to get between the police and the students. She would have been a mother of four children at the time. And at this particular demonstration, mothers had gathered, uh, linking each other elbow and elbow, standing between the police and the students. I ducked under the hands of people to get between the police and the students. I met this riot, I met this riot squad policeman face to face with his mask on and everything. He was close enough to touch. I met this policeman's eyes straight on. And I had this overwhelming experience of identification, of shared identity. This was the most transformative moment of my life. Having this experience of shared identity with the riot squad policeman. It was a gift. Nothing had prepared me for it. I didn't have any conceptual basis for understanding it. The total experience was real and incontrovertible.
What in your heart resonates with this story? Are there any experience of, experiences of yours that resonate with this? It could be as simple as a moment of seeing someone else's view. Someone with whom you had been fighting. And all of a sudden you saw their side, simple, obvious. You just, it just hadn't occurred to you. And then your understanding of the whole situation changed. Or maybe the profundity of her experience struck you. And maybe you had a profound experience that you, that you didn't and maybe still don't have any conceptual basis for. Maybe you've tried to talk about it. Maybe you've tried to think about it. But in trying to talk about it, you've always had the sense that you weren't conveying the actual experience itself. And maybe your mind still goes back there from time to time and, and just kind of wonders. And if that's the case for you, maybe actually it's something that as I speak, you can still touch into. There's some deep memory that remains, like dark water below you in a deep pool. It's still somehow there. And she continues. My life as a political activist ended with that encounter because there was no longer anything to fight against. The way I described it to my friends was the policeman was trying to protect what he thought was right and good from all the other people who were trying to destroy it. And I was doing the same thing. Since I had no basis for understanding the experience of shared identity with someone, I, someone whom I had considered completely other, and because the experience had been so real and so powerful, I began to search for someone who would understand it. In my search, I met Shunryu Suzuki Roshi. And when he looked at me, I knew that he understood. Now, this is a story um, about Blanche Hartman's calling into uh, what ended up being lifelong Zen practice. And if you think about your own entry into Zen, what is it that hooked you? Or into spirituality, what is it that hooked you? 
or into a sense of a deeper Perhaps there's some kind of initiation story that you've told many times over meals with curious strangers. Such and such was happening in my life. I was thinking, feeling so-and-so, this difficult thing had happened, and then someone gave me this book. But of course, over time, many, 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 many things brought you to where you are now, most of them very small. And many, 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 many things, most of them small, kept you where you are now because there have been so many opportunities to do something different with your life. I personally remember when I walked into Dharmarain Zen Center in the summer of 2010, I'm taking joy as I happen to recall. It was the evening of Jomon's Shuso Hosen in Portland. not knowing the place, not knowing anybody there. I walked into a room where various people were socializing in different groups, looked over and saw Hogan, whom I knew from a month residency at Great Vow two years prior. He was clearly engaged with a group of people, looked up and said, hello, Danny, welcome back, nice to see you. I remember being uh, impressed that I was recognized. I remember feeling comforted that someone recognized me and also impressed by his ability to notice me without disturbing the conversation that he was in. For most of us, the things that impress us, shape us, guide us, inspire us, are little things that accumulate over time. And probably the most influential people in our lives are those who continually touch us in little ways. When I was in high school, I came across what I now know as a false Charles Schultz quote. You know you're a diva if there are false quotes in your name around the internet. But at the time, it was addressed as being from Charles Schultz. And it's a quiz. And the quiz reads, Name the five wealthiest people in the world. Name the last five Heisman Trophy winners. Name the last five winners of the Miss America pageant. Name 10 people who have won the Nobel or Pulitzer Prize. Name the last half dozen Academy Award winners for Best Male and Female Actor. Name the last decade's worth of World Series winners. Tally up your score. 
now for part B. List a few teachers who aided your journey through school. Name three friends who have helped you through a difficult time. Name five people who have taught you something worthwhile. Think of a few people who have made you feel appreciated and special. And think of five people you enjoy spending time with. And using the text uh, from the quotes to talk about its, its fairly obvious point. In the first paragraph, and maybe these are categories in, in life that don't particularly interest us, but at least as a, as a high school student, I recognized these are very big, big deal people, and, and I don't know who they are. So maybe they're not as big of a deal as I think they are. The text says, these are not second-rate achievers. These are the best in their fields. But the applause dies, awards tarnish, achievements are forgotten, accolades and certificates are buried with their owners. The people who make a difference in your life are not the ones with the most credentials. They are simply the ones who care the most. And I was very impressed by this at that age, and I think it affected what I view as important. Every Zen student longs for the moment when their Zen teacher says something to them, just one word, and the sky splits open and heaven and earth are devoured and they become one with the ancestors and all the koans become clear in one moment and they are seated in the Buddha's seat, etc., 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 and significant stories are told and they are passed on, in part because significant things do happen, and in part because these stories are very easy to tell. But most of us are mostly affected gradually by little people doing little things, and those stories are hard to pass on. If I were to put in a nutshell the most impacting teaching that I have received from Hogan Roshi over the years, it would simply be the way that he acknowledges and receives people. In my relationship with him, there has been no more powerful dharma, and it is very real. And that's something that really cannot be conveyed in a story. It's very personal. If we reflect on a powerful ancestor in our lineage years ago, such as Ehe Dogen, we know his awakening story, and we know little personal tidbits that led up to that, relationships with certain teachers, relationships with the Zen establishment in Japan. His parents died when he was young. He had a lifelong question, we're told, that existed in his heart. We have his, his writings and letter exchanges with some students. But what we don't really know is 
how he managed a sangha meeting and the, the way that a person manages a sangha meeting. That's the kind of thing that really impresses us as people because it affects us so directly. And these are the kinds of things that we do know about our contemporaries. Blanche Loeb Gelders was born in Birmingham, Alabama in 1926. Her parents were both university professors who were also political activists. I do not know the details of their activism, except that it was pertinent to aspects of inequality in Depression-era Alabama. During her childhood, they would both lose their jobs as professors as a result of their unspoken views. The family regularly received threats. Blanche recalls being ridiculed at elementary school as a child because of her parents' work. And once when she was 10, her father was nearly beaten to death by, by opponents. Older, she moved to Davis, California, and enlisted in the Army as an airplane mechanic during World War II. Out of the military, she married a radio personality out of San Francisco, Lou Hartman. He would lose his career on the radio after being blacklisted at which point she became the wage earner for the family, working as a chemist, and the two had four children, as I mentioned earlier. At the time of the protest that she described in her personal story, we can imagine from these tidbits little, little pieces about what she might have brought with her on that day. She may have been someone who saw herself on one side of culture. And maybe she saw her parents as people with deep integrity and those that they had fought against in Alabama as being of inferior view. Obviously, her husband had stood against another movement in this country that lost him his job. Probably they were culturally partisan people, just like in many aspects we are. Repeating some of her quotes that we just read, I fought for peace. There wasn't any peace in me. I hated the people who disagreed with me. One great grief, perhaps, as humans is that, is, is that of being naturally ignorant to the other side of, of a thing. It's very easy for us to point out and say, hey, poacher, you shouldn't kill rhinoceros for ivory 
Don't you see how precious and beautiful they are? And they're going to go extinct because of your actions. While at the same time, a bigger finger points back at us and says, Hey, you American, because of your lifestyle, you're changing the climate of the earth. Can't you see what you are doing? And on both sides, we're so immersed in our circumstances that the other side is is opaque to us. But then one morning, as she described, Blanche Hartman awoke to the other side. She says, my life as a political activist ended with that encounter because there was no longer anything to fight against. The policeman was trying to protect what he thought was right and good from all of the other people who were trying to destroy it. I was doing the same thing. The poacher and the one who commutes to work alike, trying to feed their family, trying to keep up within their own culture. A few stories and quotes about her. Norman Fisher says of their co-abbacy, I was the first of the younger generation within San Francisco Zen Center. I was the first of the younger generation that did not study with Shunryu Suzuki Roshi. I do not recall a single disagreement or even an unsteady word between us. Forgive me, I skipped ahead. It's a gift to be able to see, to be opened to someone else's view or something else's view. It doesn't have to be a person. She said in the beginning of her excerpt, in 1968, I was just beginning to look at the way in which I was vigorously clinging to my opinions. By stilling the mind in Seshin, we permit the possibility of changing the way we relate to our lives by bringing openness where there was closure. She had just started putting a crack into her way of being, and then it was thrown open. And she said that she knew Suzuki Roshi, understood by the way he looked at her, 
we, we can't know what it was that she saw in him, of course. It must have been very personal. But probably it's safe to say she had confidence that this person was not going to feed the views that she had recognized within herself that she was now aspiring to shed herself from. Shortly thereafter, the story took place in 1968, and then Blanche Hartman and her husband Lou Hartman began sitting at the Berkeley Zen Center in 1969 with Mel Weitzman, who just passed away this last January and functioned as abbot there, uh, I believe, all the way up until recently. She began sitting at Berkeley Zen Center in 1969. 27 years later, she was installed as co-abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, along with Norman Fisher. Her full Zen name by then, Shunbo Zenke Blanche Hartman, and studying her as an ancestor, we're not studying someone who could walk on water or who had reportedly awakened students by wiggling her eyebrows the right way or someone who could cure cancer with a touch. Rather, quote, Blanche came behind me and adjusted my posture when she touched me very gently Something like an electric shock reverberated through my whole body wonderfully. I felt bathed in kindness. Touching somebody in that way inspires the way that you touch others. Perhaps that's more healing than being able to cure one's physical illness with a touch. I remember a sitting period when Chosen walked over behind Daitetsu, who was seated here, who was notorious for nodding off in the zendo, or rather for just nodding in the zendo. And she came over in the middle of a meditation period and just stood behind him. And every time he would begin to nod, she would place just a single finger on the top of his head. And he would come up again, and she would keep her finger there and release it. And he would nod again, and she would do it again, and she stayed there for the remainder of the period. It was was very touching. Shanae and I were talking about it afterwards, and she told me that she'd started crying during the meditation period because it was so beautiful. Touching somebody in that way inspires the way that you touch others. Norman Fisher, who entered Abbasy at San Francisco Zen Center at a similar time as her, says retrospectively, I, referring to himself, I was the first of the younger generation of students at San Francisco Zen Center 
that did not study with Shunryu Suzuki Roshi. I do not recall a single disagreement or even an, un, an unsteady word between us, between Blanche and himself. All I can remember is Blanche's constant encouragement and appreciation. So in hearing this, consider your own peers and consider the peers that you feel you can really work together with and, and whom you observe work well with others and really seem to treat others well. A quote from Blanche Hartman, Hartman on how to treat others. We can be disparaging with just a look. We don't have to say a word and people will feel it. They will be hurt by it. We must be careful how we treat one another. Remember, each of you, not only are you Buddha, so is your neighbor. So are the people that you live and work with. We're trying to cultivate Buddha wherever we go. And so when you find yourself making a snap judgment about somebody or putting somebody down, preferably you will notice this before you open your mouth. But if it's after you open your mouth and say something disparaging, please try to have the courage to apologize. If you feel hurt by someone, this points out that people who hate are in their own hell. Hatred and anger come out of our own suffering. Life is too short to waste it on judging other people by whatever standards we may have. And as you hear that, maybe you have a friend or a teacher or an employee or an employer or a coworker that embodies that quality to you, to someone else, to others, and have a sense of how that really makes you feel. And Blanche is described by herself and others as coming into practice a hard-headed woman. In 1969, when she began sitting at Berkeley Zen Center, she would have been 43 years old. She recalls sitting in the back of the Zendo, hearing Suzuki Roshi talk about how all beings are Buddhas, yada, 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 and thinking all the while, well, this guy hasn't really met me. She describes her initial relationship to Zazen as a drowning person grabbing a life preserver. Hogan once described his initial relationship to Zazen as, I took to it like a fish takes to sand. She says, my daughters complained that I was never home. She tells a story 
of Suzuki Roshi catching her smoking a cigarette while she was preparing the formal tea tray. <laughs> and from all of the practice that followed, she did not become a god. She became a human being who touched the lives of many, many people over the course of many, many years in many, many significant ways. The next co-abbot to serve alongside Blanche was Linda Cutts. She recalls how unusual and refreshing it seemed at the time to have two women in the main spiritual leadership positions at the San Francisco Zen Center. When Blanche led practice periods at Tassajara, she was able to be a firm and exacting teacher. Because she was always so warm and accepting of everyone, ready with hugs and smiles, she was also able to ask so much of them. And you know this experience when you genuinely trust someone. You're able to follow their advice and guidance. Most of the stories I have about her, that I have read about her, follow, follow her installation as abbess and beyond. But before that was 25 years of formal Zen practice, which was preceded by 40 years of just straight up living. And during those 25 years of Zen practice, the kind of practice she did in the 70s and 80s resembles the kind of practice we do today. She says that Stashin were kind of loose back then and that residents at the San Francisco Center, at the San Francisco Zen Center would sneak off to Kirby's ice cream during breaks. You know, here at Great Vow, if flowers and fluff were a little bit closer, There's a, there's, a, there's a backside to everything. In 96, this is another story about her. Uh, many of the stories that I'm sharing about her are just personally posted one after the other on her obituary on the San Francisco Zen Center website. In 96, she was leading a practice period at Tassajara, so shortly after installation as co-abbot. Uh, and I think to understand this a little better, it's important to understand that the level of speech that occurs in our zendo here is, is actually quite unique. So their zendo would be much, much more quiet than ours, meaning uh, less instruction the way we have here. When Blanche was leading a practice period at Tassajara, a student who had been lying down in the zendo due to back pain let out a piercing shriek. The student had fallen asleep and was having a nightmare. We were all startled, didn't know what to do, felt awkward, had no way to respond. Blanche rose from her abbess's seat, went to the student and cradled her head in her lap and told her 
It's all right. It was just a dream. You're going to be okay. Another story. Blanche was... Uh, since Blanche was the only one here, old, was the only one older than myself, and I'd never met her face to face, I signed up for an interview. The first thing she said to me was, "This time is for you." But as we launched into an animated discussion, she more than held up her end of it. With stories of friends and Zen Center episodes from the past. We must have rambled on for an hour before she suddenly remembered there were others waiting to see her. There are many aspects of every person, of course, but these are the ways we get certain flavors of, of who this person was. Um, Blanche Hartman was here for Hogan's Denkai ceremony at the turn of the millennium, uh, his, his formally becoming a preceptor ceremony. And he said, years ago, there were just so few Zen teachers in America that they all really knew each other and that he and Chosen had very close relationships with everyone who was a part of the San Francisco system at that time. So sometimes she would come up here and visit them. They would go down and visit her. So it's worth considering, who are the people in your life that really touch you in this way? And what is it about them that touches you? What qualities do they have that, that you would like to embody? Two quotes from Blanche. The awakened mind of Buddha is available in each one of us. We just have to take down the walls. And of course, we come to Sashin in order to do this work of taking down the walls. To the extent that you feel that the walls have begun to come down, please enjoy this space. The walls have perhaps become windows, and there's more translucence between and please enjoy this space and continue to practice steadily sometimes when we study the ancient masters we miss the fact that taking down the walls is a life's work And it, it is the case that, at least over the last decade, the only period of time that I have known Hogan and Chosen for, that in recent years there 
Taisho have placed more emphasis on the life's work aspect. When we hear the powerful stories of the ancestors, it's easy to miss the fact that taking down the walls is a life's work. Maybe we just see them as special somehow. And maybe they are, but maybe the most special thing about them is that they took upon themselves this work of taking down the walls. First, scraping off the paint and removing the drywall. And the first layer was an oil-based paint, so you need some chemical and you really got to get your elbows into it. And of course, someone could just take a sledgehammer and bash the whole thing. But unless it's completely pulverized, there's a mess that remains that needs to be cleaned up. You get the drywall off and you got this big heavy thing, you've got a lug somewhere that's not in somebody else's way, and then you get to the insulation and you get fiberglass in your skin and it's in your nasal cavity for days, and it's in your eyes. And then finally you get to the inside and you're like, no wonder the framing's been done wrong and the electric's not even grounded. And only then do you remember all the times that Yoroshi told you, you got to redo the framing, you got to redo the framing, you got to redo the framing. But you could never hear it because you were so impressed by the paint job. This work is available for any of us to do. For any of us to do. As Zen K. Blanche Hartman says, you are not the one single exception to the fact that all beings are Buddha. You are not that exceptional. The work is really done breath by breath. By continually turning the mind away from its script, away from its tension, away from its memories, away from its fantasies, away from its shoulds and shouldn'ts. And returning to the always available lived experience of the moment. And Session is designed to support us in doing this work. So please take good advantage of this opportunity. It is true that we can practice anywhere and at any time, in any circumstance, but generations and generations of loving people have devoted themselves to ensuring that this particular practice support be available to you. So please own that.
Blanche says, everything that we have without exception has come from the kindness of others. So appreciate this life and its every aspect given through the kindness of others. And continue the work to deconstruct the walls. To deconstruct the walls. The walls being whatever prevents you from being able to recognize this great kindness. She says the purpose of counting the breaths is to learn to take care of the breaths. So whatever your practice is, whatever your experience is, please take good care of that experience. To attend is to care for. To attend is to care for. It is the simple, steady, kind attention from others that shapes us over time. As you continue your work in this life, in this session, please offer yourself this same simple, steady kind of attention, moment by moment. Although it's a life's work, we can only ever engage it right now. So get started. And continue. And don't let walls, apparent walls, get in your way. Wanting to be free. Because if you built the wall, then you can take it down. It takes time and effort, and it's worth it. And the Sangha is here to help you along the path. 